Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Today, we will be discussing cancel culture from different perspectives. Is cancel culture a new method of social censure, weaponized by online media platforms, or just a recycled term for common public shaming? How does it intersect with free speech and censorship? As practiced today, is it a radical form of citizen justice or merely another handmaiden to the power elites? Who cancels whom and why? Justice served or witch hunt collateral damage? Let's discuss. Hi, Greg. Welcome back. Hey, Pat, how are you? And I see you uh, you brought a friend to this podcast. So I did. Uh, I'm we'll very happy to bring a, a second. I, uh, I'd like to say that, um, uh, Greg, you and I looked at an article by Chris Hedges on cancel culture and decided to do our next podcast on that topic. And lo and behold, you happen to have a friend that literally wrote the book on it. Uh, and that is Dan. And uh, Dan, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. First of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, my name is Dan Kavalik, and uh, I, well, wear many hats. I was a steelworker lawyer for 26 years, retired from there. Um, now, I, I guess I, I spend most of my time writing, and I've written um, five books, uh, all on U.S. foreign policy, critical of U.S. foreign policy, and now have written a, a new book on cancel culture, which is a bit of a departure um, from what I've written in the past, though it was inspired by some events in Pittsburgh, which I'm happy to, to talk about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, Dan's book is uh, called uh, Cancel This Book, uh, homage to uh, Abby Hoffman, Steal This Book, A Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture and it'll be coming out in what, April, um, late April? Okay. Mm -hmm. And I, I looked online, you can already pre-order it if you want. And uh, it uh, looks like it's gonna be a good read. I've read uh, one and a half of your books and plan to sort of chip away and get through them all before, uh, before the next year or so, so. Well, Pat, thank you. I appreciate that. So I, I think that part of this issue is um, cancel culture in a way is a, to me, uh, a bit of a Rorschach test. You know, one can kind of project with it uh, what uh, what what they what they see in it. What the, you know, whose ox is being gored? Uh, is it good? <laughs> is it bad? Is it new? Is it just recycled uh, uh, boycotting uh, that's been um, accelerated through social media? And I think the. Uh, you know, I was I was watching a Glenn, Glenn Greenwald uh, uh, podcast on the subject, and he had a definition of it. Lo and behold, there's a Wikipedia page that gives you a definition of cancel culture. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, Dan, how would you how would you kind of summarize how you see it as a as a concept? Yeah. So as a concept, I would say, and I do I do define it in in the book, um, but. In broad strokes, what I would say about it is it is a, first of all, generally a form of shaming someone. Um, 
for can be for many things can be for something they've done um many times it's for something they've said or something they've been accused of saying whether they even said it or not many times what they've said is is taken out of context is is read into in ways you know most is a lawyer i would say you know most disfavorable to the speaker um and then what happens is again particularly on social media you will have for lack of a better word a mob of people who start to attack this person online and in the worst case scenarios um they will call upon the employer of that person to fire them or an organization they're associated with to disown them um that essentially is what what cancel culture is and it is something that has um, progressed and accelerated over the years um, it's an interesting thing because you know it, it, many people associate the right wing uh, with complaining about it and, and, and some people claim it doesn't really exist in fact it's some sort of right wing canard right um but it clearly exists and um many times it takes the form of of liberals and leftists or self-described leftists attacking another leftist and and um trying to destroy their reputation or their again destroy their job jk rowling and and her yes her issue with that is an example of that certainly now you know um and there are many famous people who have been uh the victims of of this or would be victims but you know a lot of them can weather it better than you know not so famous people and 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 that's more of what i'm concerned about i'm concerned about the rank and file people right right yeah i i noticed i have a quote here from jim jordan uh, the cons- uh, representative Jim Jordan. This is the number one issue for the country to address today. That was just a couple of days, a couple of <laughs> days ago on Fox News, and the Republican convention. When was that? In July, uh, the theme of cancel culture was pervasive throughout. That that somehow the uh, the tech giants are muzzling us. They're trying to stop our speech. They're, but. You, you see some, I think, of the most cruel and insidious uses of it on college campuses where yes. somebody retweeted something from a couple of years ago or, you know, just some minor uh, uh, transgression. The, the case of Smith, Smith College uh, right now with the woman who retweeted something regarding um, diversity training, a very benign thing, and now has lost her job or more more uh, recently, Nate Robinson, Current Affairs uh, magazine editor, one of my favorite blogs and magazines that I read, made some reference to the military-industrial complex spending in Israel, and lost his job at the Guardian. Just you know, just like that. That's kind of an example of the hysteria that is uh, fueled by this phenomenon. I th- I, that's new, isn't it? Don't you think? Well, it is, and I think you know what uh, what allows that sort of thing 
definitely is the internet because and cell phones. I mean, so you know, so much of what we do and say is now public, either because right. we want it to be, because we go on Twitter and say something, or go on Facebook and say something, or we say something or do something that's videotaped and it's put up on social media for us. There's essentially a record of everything we say and do to to, to a very large extent. Right. Again, sometimes because we want that, and in and, and, and other times, um, even when we don't want it. And of course, even if you if you post something and then delete it, many times someone will have already um, taken a screenshot of it, so it lives in you know in perpetuity right. um, to be used against you uh, <laughs> in a, a a future case. Yeah. And what I, you know, what troubles me about, I mean, a lot of things trouble me about it, but, and as I talk about in, in my book is that, you know, when I was in college many moons ago in the eighties, you know, we, I was a campus activist. We had a very brisk campus activist life. Um, and what we spent our time doing is protesting CIA recruitment on campus protesting the war in Central America, protesting apartheid, trying to get our university to die best from South Africa. And now it seems that a large part of what passes for activism on college campuses is just trying to destroy people's lives, right? right. Individuals' lives, trying to get people fired. I mean, how is that activism? I mean, I couldn't have imagined doing that, except in the most extreme circumstance. Right. To want to, to, to take someone's livelihood from them. And especially, and again, as I also talk in the book, and as others have pointed out, like Matt Taibbi, when you have a university system now where you have mostly adjuncts who are getting paid pennies right. for their time. You know, people barely eking out a living, and now you have, you know, again, because of a stray remark, an inadvertent remark, um, they can be fired. It's just, it's stunning to me, and it is such a waste, so, and it's cruel. It's yeah. cruel as well. It's it's cruelty dressed up as social justice, right. and that, it, that's sickening to me, honestly. Yeah, I remember at my small Midwestern co uh, college, we had William Kunstler, the the, the, the uh, Chicago 7 attorney, and then we had the head of the uh, Nazi party in one year speaking. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, well, and, and that's what we used to, you know, and, yeah. and look, you might go protest one or the other, depending on your political point of view. But the idea of saying that people shouldn't be able to come to a campus and talk, you know, um, yeah, it's 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 incredible, and what it's done is it's 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 destroyed campus life. So, Greg, I've got a I have a question for you. You probably more than any of us have been witness to or are knowledgeable about the hysteria that often accompanies the McCarthyism and the Red Square, the Red Scare, and how being labeled a communist has destroyed the union movement. And that's, that's part of our history. Is this in your light similar to that where 
the the label being canceled or the label you're a communist or a socialist essentially comes with it a uh, a weaponized response that's often anti-intellectual hysterical uh, what's your thought about the comparison between the two or do you see that yeah it uh it does share the hysteria no question about that and that's that's what i see and scares me and the similarity i find with it is the hysteria but it's uh, a, a little bit different uh Insofar as it, uh, it, it's a distraction. It's a distraction. It's a distraction from the real issues that affect most Americans. I first encountered it. Uh, my daughter was working on a master's degree, and she invited me to a, a lecture on microaggressions. And I says, mm -hmm. "What the hell are microaggressions? I, my whole life has been spent addressing macroaggressions, racism, and uh, you know." Uh, class oppression and, and, and fighting for workers' rights. What are microaggressions? And I realized this was the cutting edge of this kind of movement, this cancel movement. I don't like the term particularly. I, people are in love with neologisms in this country, but it's com more complicated than that. But nonetheless, liberals are using these attacks because they don't want to go after the real fundamental problems that people are facing in this country. And to address those problems, you have to deal with economics. You have to deal with the inequalities, the economic inequalities, the wealth inequalities in this country. And liberals in, in elite universities, which are dictating a lot of this, they would rather deal with these quote unquote microaggressions. They get a good sense of being engaged and involved in, uh, in struggles. And at the same time, they avoid the questions of dealing with poor people. In fact, they victimize poor people, as I think Dan pointed out. Poor people are often the victims of this because they don't know the language. They don't know how to say things. They don't or, know or, how to talk or, about. Older, or older people that maybe are not Older people who the... have not kept up with the, the, the latest cool word, like, like uh, cancel culture is the latest cool mm -hmm. word. Mm -hmm. so, so it victimizes all the victims, and it avoids looking at it. The right wing, on the other hand, they opportunistically use this as a way to bash the liberals and bash the concerns about oppressions. So you see, you got both sides fighting a war that we really don't have a stake in, those of us that care about the majority of people in this country. So it becomes a massive distraction from the real issues. I would just say that, also I would say that we have to be very careful because in attacking these thought police, and that's what they are, the thought police, language police, we can't be caught in defending victims who actually are engaging in part of that oppression of other people. We have to be very careful that we do not sound as though we are justifying people that use language badly, use racist language, anti-women uh, language, anti-gay language, and so on. So that's a concern I always have with these discussions. Generally, when I read Taibi, I read uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, many others that are on the cutting edge of this. And then I, I, at some point I say, wait a minute now, you sound like a right winger. Starting to sound like a right winger. You've got to put in the dangers that language does carry. We do have to hold people responsible for what they say. We just don't have to persecute them. And I think what liberals have not done is they put, they put in their back pocket for the moment. They've forgotten about or pushed into the closet the old liberal values of tolerance, of giving people a chance to defend themselves a chance to uh, 
face the charges. These these liberals that are on a on a on a rampage now with this canceling generally give people no chance to defend themselves or explain themselves or justify that. The example that one of the examples that uh, Dan and I share from Pittsburgh is an example of that. It was a woman who was uh, in the forefront of anti-war activity, uh, anti-nuclear weapon uh, research and development, um, also involved in, in, in fighting for black people, getting construction jobs in the city of Pittsburgh, which they still don't have. And yet she was, uh, her language was picked on by a bunch of frankly, young and uninvolved liberals who were offended by her language choice, haven't done a 10th of what she's done in the struggles as she's an older woman. And that appalls me and I think it appalled Dan too. Yeah. Yeah. Let, and I, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, can, let, can I add something to that or no, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead, Dan, yes. Well, and I wanna say that, you know, and in her case and in many cases, again, if reasonably and kind of fairly judged, what she said wasn't even racist. I mean that's that's what's troubling it is one thing to hold someone accountable for for saying something racist or sexist but to essentially try to go out of your way to find an innocuous statement racist and then persecute someone for that is crazy so in in her case i mean we should say what it was she posted a meme that was going around she reposted it so you know she didn't invent the meme how old was she dan 85 oh okay so this isn't like a 60 year old this is <laughs> she's in the autumn of her years okay all right say. all right if not the winter um and she posted a, a meme with a picture of martin luther king and this was during the summer uh, of the protests right and it said, never looted, never rioted, change the world. That's what she posted. Okay. So a clearly a, a pacifistic message associated with Martin Luther King at a time when there were protests that did, in some cases, involve violence. And, you know, she was immediately attacked online. And then as usual, she was forced to apologize publicly, which she did, but that wasn't enough and it's never enough. Um, ultimately, the organization that she helped found 50 years ago, the Thomas Merton Center, put out a statement disassociating their, themselves from oh her goodness. and saying they can no longer work with her because of one post that she then took down and apologized for, but of course they photoshopped, they photo took a screenshot of it. Again, if it's so offensive, why would you do that, right? And then, and then keep reposting it, because it's not offensive. Um, and no one was offended by it. I don't believe anyone was offended by it. Um, but it was a chance to dethrone someone. And, that, and I do think cancel culture is used that way. I think right. there is right. an intergenerational thing where people, want to knock off the elders, right? Want to take their positions and, and that sort of thing. And I think this has been ongoing for a long time that the young uh, employees and, 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 and board members of the Thomas Merton Center have wanted to essentially put her in the dustbin of history for some time. And this was the chance to do that and the, to move on to other things. You know, I, I really do believe that. 
Well, let me tell you a, a personal story, and then I want to get your opinion on a, on a legal personnel matter, Dan. Uh, <laughs> I, at the twilight of my career as an administrator, I, w I walked into a room with um, 15 other directors, and we were getting ready for a meeting. I was early. And it just so happened that all of the females were on one group at one end of the table and all the males were on the other end of the table. And uh, being just, you know, making a flippant comment, I said, you know, I, I looked at it, I said, what, you know, this reminds me of middle school cafeteria. We've got all the boys on this side and all the girls over this side. And then the meeting began. The next day I was brought into my supervisor's office and was told that some in the meeting were very upset that I used the term girls. Right. And I thought she was just joking. I mean, I, I really yeah. thought this was, yeah, I I'm thought sure this, you did. but yeah. no, <laughs> she was not joking. And I said, uh, were any of the males upset that I used the term boys or uh, was this just, uh, you know, and that didn't go well. And, and so immediately I knew I just needed to shut up and be quiet and yeah and apologize and apologize uh, yeah. and grovel and all of that thing that one does when you're uh you know one year away from retirement so we have the case of the new york times this is a personnel question now for you dan yeah, okay uh we have the reporter don mcneil who mm -hmm. was the fellow that took the field trip with high school students. Yes, I know. Yeah, I know and the story. Yeah. And he made some sort of nebulous comment of, I, I don't know exactly, a joke or something like that. And lo and behold, it bubbled back to the New York Times and 150 staff members signed some sort of statement saying, you know, this was horrible and you need to get rid of this very good reporter, very right. good reporter. So in a way, I'm almost seeing cancel culture as a, a way of purging, a way of management to purge people that in, in kind of a, a very nebulous, uh, fuzzy ways, giving them the power to push out uh, people well, that I, don't comply and don't group think. Is that how you, are you finding that in your? I do think that, too? and I'll give you, and I'll tell you, I'll give you a great example why I think that's true. So during the Trump term with the Trump National Labor Relations Board, the worst NLRB we've ever had. And I can say that I was a labor lawyer for 26 years. Um, worse than the Batista board under Reagan. Okay, very anti-union. Did a lot of things to try to undermine unions uh, during the four years it was in existence. Well, they issued a decision in the case of General Motors in December of 2019, very, very recently. And in it, they overturned decades of board law on this issue, on offensive speech during um, collective bargaining or a strike. So the law had been for years that during bargaining or a strike or labor action, labor activity, it's assumed that people are going to get upset and they're going to say incendiary things, sometimes even racist things, sexist things. And your job is protected if you do that as a union person, right? If you're in a union context, um, so long as it, what you said, even if offensive, um, could not be reasonably construed as a, as a threat of violence, okay? So, 
Um, and again, it's to protect, you know, vigorous or heated uh, in the heat of the moment kind of thing. right uh, labor speech. Right. So they overturn that law in a case where a guy, amongst other things, and by the way, he was black, black employee during collective bargaining to mock management's concessionary demand said pretended essentially he was a slave you know yes master and this sort of thing right? right the company said we find that offensive that sort of thing you know that you're you're doing that now under old board law it wouldn't matter you found it offensive he wasn't threatening you and blah blah General Motors upheld, or or the NRB in that case, upheld his discipline. And they said that now, essentially, it's going to be the employer's subjective view on whether your speech is offensive or threatening um, that's going to allow them to fire you. So if this is not overturned, this means that you can be, even in a union context, fired for vir- virtually anything. Right. Now, no one thinks that Trump or the Trump NRB are, were progressive vis-a-vis unions or vis-a-vis minorities or vis-a-vis women. But they were quoted in the New York Times, one of the board members who wrote the opinion, oh, we just can't allow this anymore. We're not going to allow this type of, you know, racist, defensive speech. And they don't care about that. General Motors doesn't care about this. This is being used to, as a means to uh, police your workforce, to discipline your workforce. And it has the advantage that now progressive people are happy to snitch on their buddy right it used right. to be if you were a snitch that was the worst thing you could possibly be now it's progressive to be a snitch right and it it, it, it purges some of the older people out of the system i i have a I have a question for you greg i i finally got around to reading glenn greenwald's intercept article about hunter biden's um uh, laptop and he submitted this to the intercept and the editor said that uh, they weren't going to publish it. And at, that was at the time when Facebook took, uh, you know, would refuse to have any cleansed everything of that issue. Uh, Dorsey uh, suspended their Twitter account. No one in the New York Times would publish anything about it. And frankly, the article is pretty scathing. It went through the contents of what's on the laptop and it suggested that he and his dad and this whole thing, there was, you know, this kind of high level collusion to uh, extract some wealth from Ukraine. So the the, um, cancel culture came after Greenwald said that you're leaving just because you want to make more money and, you know, with with your private journalism and they, they denigrated him. But to me, this is this gets to the point of how do we find out what's true? How do we feel? How do we deal with free speech? Again, like I said at the beginning, whose ox is being gored? How do you control information? And how does this seem to be used, be weaponized for the power structures to control the, what they have? What, what are your thoughts about that? 
Well, I, I, I take this from the perspective of uh, philosophical anthropology. That is, what is going on? Let's dig into the times we live in and what does it mean to have cancel culture, to have the kind of media that we have, the kind of uh, journalist uh, devouring each other, Barry Weiss uh, being attacked by people when she wrote for the New York Times. Now she's outside and she's attacking people inside the New York Times and inside the New York Times there. They're all devouring each other. What does it mean? Very simply, it means we're in a profound, deep crisis. And we have to delve into why we are in this crisis. What are the bases for this crisis? The vast inequality that leads up to a time like this, the protection of privilege. Much mm -hmm. of what's going on with the New York Times is a competition between graduates of elite schools for rare and uh, decent paying jobs at a time when the media is shrinking. And so they're devouring each other. I don't think anyone presents it that way. They present it in it usually is, is built upon desperation. Just right. as, as the uh, Reverend Campbell, is that her name, his name, Reverend Campbell? Uh, Reverend, uh, yeah, Will Campbell. Do you, do you know him, Dan? Have you heard of Reverend Will Campbell? He's a good friend of Chris Hedges. and he Oh, was, yeah, well, he, I know he mentioned him in his article. Yeah, but I didn't know him aside from that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, he, he's, uh, he, he's, he's, he's trying to, to humanize all the players. I think we probably should demonize all the players because there really are no good guys. When, when Hunter Biden is doing what Hunter Biden is doing, he's doing exactly what the sons and daughters of the conservatives are doing. They're scrambling for money. They're scrambling right. for a job. They're scrambling for income. Right. They're, they're uh, knee deep. No, they're up to their necks in corruption. Mm -hmm. So why would that surprise anybody? And why would people feel compelled to take a side in that? But given the two-party system that we live in, everyone feels compelled to take a side. It's like in Pittsburgh, you have to tell everybody you're a Steeler fan. What if you don't give a damn about, about football? You think it's stupid and it's a distraction. Well, I think much of this political stuff is a distraction as well. And, uh, and we're asked to participate in it. Frankly, they're all crooks. Don't, well, don't we I, know that? Don't we know that? Yeah. Well, I was so I was so impressed with those quotes on Reverend Campbell. I actually went out and read his book, uh, "Brother to a Dragonfly," his memoir. And re and for those who don't know Reverend Campbell, he was a born in Mississippi. He absolute civil rights attorney uh, or a uh, minister. Uh, walked you know w w walked with black kids through crowds of people to get them to school. But he was also the unofficial minister to the Ku Klux Klan. And he made the statement that I love Klansmen, I hate the Klan. In other words, he wouldn't give up on people. He saw, he saw that when people made fun of poor farmers in the South because they didn't know what their left or the right was and they would laugh because they didn't know the left or right, he thought that was a tragedy. What, what was the circumstance that got them to where they couldn't identify left to right? And that reminds me of the deplorables that invaded the <laughs> Capitol. You know, who are these people? They're, 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 they're stereotyped as this just, this just, you know, zombie Trump supporters. But if you look at the recent article of Washington Post, 125 of those defendants were charged in, in storming the Capitol. 60% of the people facing charges to the Capitol 
had prior signs of money troubles, including bankruptcies, notices of foreclosures, bankruptcy rate at twice the rate of the population. In other words, that population had grievances. They, they were there for a reason, not because they had some sort of worm that went through their brain that changed their thinking. They were there because the system failed them and that they were, you know, that they, they, they were there acting as they, they probably should given their circumstances. And that's, I think, the parallels between Campbell and how we view the opposition. We tend to have this, this uh, light switch, good and bad, and we don't realize that it's a rheostat, that there are, are, are levels of, um, in, 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 uh, you know, th th there are reasons why some of these people act the way they do, and we don't think of that reason. Yeah, and, and can I say, so? I mean, to, to respond to what you said, Pat, and to respond to what you said, Greg, what all this does, what we're talking about, is destroy solidarity. Mm. between people right who should be working together right and so it destroys solidarity between co-workers right we should all unite together against the boss instead we're, we're ratting on each other right even at the new york times ratting on other right, journals right. trying to get them fired but on a grander scale what's happening is as you mentioned and i again i do talk about this in my book um it divides the working class along uh, racial and other lines, right? And so as people um, have pointed out better than me, like Adolf Reed, now essentially uh, to just say the word working class, most people, woke people, the people who might cancel others, um, perceive the working class as the white working class. And even when black people act as workers <laughs> and go on strike, they're not in the working class. The, the, right. There is one working class and it's white. Right. And isn't this an incredible way to destroy class consciousness, right? Um, and destroy the ability to fight for things of common concern. 67% of the population, for example, supports Medicare for all. That seems like that's a place to start in terms of solidarity and, and working together towards a goal that most people want. Minimum most wage. People, minimum wage, even police reform and, and right. criminal justice reform. As Chomsky you know, has pointed out over the years, on individual issues, Americans by and large are pretty progressive. They get derailed on these other things, you know, on these flashpoint issues. Um, but on the whole, they, they have a good sense of things. They tend to be anti-war as well. And, and then, by the way, what's happened with that issue is now conservatives, as far as I can tell, have become more anti-war than, than liberals. That's kind of flip-flopped. And so what's happened essentially is there's no way for us to work together against the 1%. The 99% is at each other's throats over so many things. This works out perfectly for the ruling class. Um, and that's why it's promoted by the ruling class. That's why the Amazons of the world and um, Uber of the world, which you know got the uh, Prop 22 uh, measure um, uh, passed, 
they they adopted all the you know all of the language of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement to right. get that done to appeal to voters. Why, why and now, you, but no, go ahead. Yeah. 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 Why are you denying that poor person the right to have cheap transportation to their doctor? Right. You know, and poor, and, poor people and, don't use Uber. Poor people right. don't use Uber. Yeah, it's it's rich it's, people who use it, and that's yeah. who you know. That's why they voted the way they did. And by the way, if you follow the story, Uber drivers in California have now suffered a huge drop in their wages at right. Uber due to this thing. So this is working perfectly for uh, uh, the ruling class. I mean, and that's why we have, have to push back against it. And it's painful. Uh, none of us want to, because you're going to get canceled if you do. But you have to do it or, or, or we're finished. I mean, that's my view. Anyway, well, I've, that, I've said, I, if you could, if, if, if you were going to give me an elevator speech on what it is, I think that's the concept. It's right there. It's a way of the, you know, dividing people. It's a way of consolidating power. It's no different than uh, union people being accused of communism because that destroys the union. You know, it's it's the that it's it's weaponized by the left and the right. But the point is, ultimately, who wins? The powerful continue to own power. The capitalists continue to um, uh, consolidate their 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 power. Also, I don't know that that's how do you see it, Greg? Is that yeah? I, I think you're onto it. I, I think you're exactly onto it. In fact. Uh, you know, you scratch your head and you wonder why you're seeing all these commercials now, today, not 10 years ago or five years ago, but after uh, Black Lives Matter that uh, that are paying homage and uh, pledging to anti-racism by all these major corporations, which never gave a damn before about uh, anti-racism, never supported it, never put a dime behind it. Now they have created funds. They're wallowing in the fact that this cancel culture mentality, this notion of attacking what people say, uh, how they express themselves, what they might be thinking, is dominant now in the anti-racist struggle, as opposed to dealing with Black oppression. There is a guy in Pittsburgh who ran for office and lost recently, but he's a professor, African-American, youngster. He did work in South Africa. Then he went to the Hill District, which is a largely Black community in Pittsburgh. He points out the similarities and then he backs it up with a huge volume of statistics about how black people are living in the city, income wise, life expectancy, health care, all the great measures of, of thriving that blacks here are behind. And he calls it an apartheid city. We used to talk about a ghetto, but we have ghettos in Pittsburgh. I'll use the term, but our liberal friends who police our words, they want to talk about the black community. But they're really, their interest is really in middle class and upper middle class black people. It's not in the oppressed. Same with women that are oppressed. Women that are oppressed today are working crap jobs, they're single parents and so on. They got, they're not so concerned about the language used. They're not concerned at all about that. But we are. We are because it's been imposed upon us by these liberals, and they're mainly liberals, who want to uh, to uh, earn merit badges by policing the language and the activity of, of other people. It's really uh, a distraction. 
And it's really, as, as Dan pointed out, a division in our working class, a real powerful division. And, it was, and it's working. It is. It is. Well, and can I just say something that's, that's kind of interesting too, or not coincidental? You know, one of the things that you can be accused of and canceled for, and people often are, is for being class reductionist, alleged class reductionist. And, 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 and that, that's thrown around just because you merely advocate for class solidarity and try to talk about class at all. Right. Explain class reductionist. What? What are you? What? How would you explain that? Well, it's an accusation that, and look, I'm sure there were, were people in the, in the day who might fit this that believe and advocate the class divisions are really the only main divisions in society. Okay. Okay. Not racial ones, gender ones, etc. Right. Right. And so, if you take a position that even smells of that now again and no one really takes that position you'd have to be nuts to take that position i mean to the extreme right right but even an african-american like adolph reed because he does talk a lot about class because he does say that class differences actually define a lot of things and a lot of disparities in our society that people uh you know write off as, as merely racial divisions. Um, he's been he's been utterly deplatformed and canceled for saying those things. And again, he's black and he's done civil rights work. It's not like he thinks that race doesn't matter, but he thinks class also matters, right? But here's the interesting thing. So Adolf Reed is is something we call a Marxist. Isn't it interesting that McCarthyism went after Marxists? And frankly, Cancel culture is going after Marxists because if you if you are a Marxist and therefore by definition care about class, care about class organizing, and say so, you're a pariah. And in fact, um, well, I just saw a thing. Uh, DSA is starting to kick people out who are being accused of being class reductionists. Well, so they're just getting rid of all the vitamins that they have in that organization. Um, and they were the ones that deplatformed Adolf Reed, um, who right. was scheduled to speak for them. So again, isn't it interesting that, that one of the targets for this are the same people targeted during McCarthyism? Right. Yeah, let, and, me, let me say a couple of words about reductionism. I labored in the vineyards of academia for long enough to encounter it. And it, it in, in general terms, not simply class reductionism, but as a term of a, a demeaning term, it, a broad demeaning term, it grows out of postmodernism and that thread, which uh, serious people in academia looked at as a joke, but uh, it was picked up and popularized. And so it's very seldom found in academia today where it originated, it has no credibility there, but it's tossed about like uh, nickels and dimes among uh, leftists, you know. And of course, it got attached to class because that was a way of saying something and baffling everybody. Like Pat said, "What do you mean by re class reductionism?" We don't mean anything, but it's it's got enough of a following and a usage that it immediately shuts people up. Oh, I didn't mean to be class reductionist. And these youngsters in DSA, they have no clue to what class reductionism is, or if it has any meaning whatsoever or why you would ever accuse somebody of doing it. It's just a way of getting at people. 
it's part of the cancel uh, culture uh, phenomena. Right, right. Well, good, good. I could keep talking, I could keep talking, but this has been fun. And Dan, I'm, I can hardly wait to read your new book. And uh, this was just perfect timing. And it was so serendipitous, <laughs> it was so serendipitous that, that, uh, that you were able to come and, and fill in our, um, our content with some real expertise and some a different perspective. So I really thank you so much. And hope, well, maybe we'll have you back. Uh, I would love it. And I'm grateful to the both of you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Good. And uh, thanks, Dan. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank bye, you. Bye, all. Bye, Greg. Okay. Bye bye. <laughs>